Ladies and gentlemen, in just a moment you are going to hear the voice of a man who will tell you some tremendously important facts. Welcome to the Reality Revolution. I have a special episode today of the Reality Revolution. I have the one and only Lynn McTaggart. Lynn McTaggart is one of my very favorite authors. She has helped me to bridge the gap between the spiritual and the scientific. And her many amazing books I cannot tell you enough about. Uh, Lynn McTaggart is an award-winning journalist and author of seven books, including the worldwide international bestsellers, The Power of Eight, The Field, The Intention Experiment, and The Bond, all considered seminal books of the new science and now translated into some 30 languages. And I had reached out to Lynn. She was so nice to accept this interview. I've always been a huge fan, and it's such an honor to get a chance to speak with her. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the Reality Revolution, Lynn. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Brian. So uh, for people that maybe haven't heard of you and your work, I'd love to get your origin story. Your books really come with, uh, underlying your books is a drive, a desperate, almost desire, because it's so intense to explain the unexplainable, to document and navigate what we think is happening in the world and show us you know this is what's really happening and you've done a really uh, you've done a, a huge service for me in helping me to understand the way that my intentions actually become reality so tell me wh what's your origin story where did it all begin well i guess i've always been interested in the unseen in esoteric um ideas and also um uh, the idea of reality not being what it seems, you know, even as a teenager. But I really started my professional life as, as a journalist. I'm an investigative reporter by background. So I spent my 20s, you know, busting international baby selling rings with hidden uh, tape recorders. I even posed as an unwed mother and then as a prospective adoptive parent in my 20s to... Um, you know, bust one of the biggest baby selling rings in the world. Uh, and so all of that work really, I suppose, prepared me for, for diving into this science because it really required that level of intensity to understand it, but also to put it together. Now, I'd been very interested in the idea that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. And that started when I began researching my book, The Field. And that got started because I produce with my husband, we founded and, uh, and own a publication called What Doctors Don't Tell You. We've been running it for 32 years. It started as a newsletter, now it's an international magazine and it has been for a number of years. But back in the 1990s, I kept coming across very good scientific studies of spiritual healing. And I kept thinking to myself, wait a minute, if we take a thought as a healer does and send it to someone else and it makes that person better, well, that undermines everything we think about how the world works. And so I set out trying to figure out why this could be. Are there, is there something out there like human energy fields? And I thought it was going to be a relatively easy task. I would talk to some frontier scientists 
They'd give me the information. I'd write it up, put it in my book, and that'd be it. What I didn't count on was discovering a completely new science in the making. With every scientist I interviewed, and I interviewed all of the big pioneers in this field, most of them now passed on. But back then, I interviewed them, and I realized, to my astonishment, that each of them were uncovering a tiny bit of what compounded into a completely new science, a new view of the world. So I also realized that scientists, number one, talk in code. They talk in math. And so if I was going to present this to an audience, I was going to have to decode it. And secondly, I also realized that scientists don't like to speculate. They have their own little experimental patch and they cover that, but they never like to say what this all means. That job was going to be left to me. So this was much more than I bargained for. And in doing it, it really propelled me into this area to find out more, to understand more. And that is still my passion. And it also you know, hijacked me <laughs> from my other work permanently. Absolutely. It's a big shift from just being a journalist to doing this, but you still carried your journalistic integrity into these books. And that's why they shine so much because you're just not making assertions. You're you're citing incredible empirical studies, um, um, evaluating their statistical significance. Uh, you, you're going into it with an open mind. Clearly, you're not biased as somebody that, you know, went through college for, you know, in graduate school it, these read like um, grad. They read like master's thesis. Um, the way that you pr um, propose them and put them together, and that's why they were so impressive. That uh, when you read a lot of other books today, they're missing that. It's you, you filled in an area that was desperately needed because, as you found, this the research is out there. Uh, a lot of people had not put and gathered this research together to prove these things that people say that are unprovable. Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of writers are pretty lazy. You know, one of the good things about investigative reporting is that, and it's, you know, it's a dying art now. I don't think there are many journalists out there who are very good anymore. They are essentially, you know, uh, affirming the status quo. They are, uh, protecting the governments. And, uh, you know, a journalist's first job is to find out, as my husband said, he's also a, a journalist, you know, if you sit in front of somebody of authority, how are they lying and what are they missing? You know, and that's what you come to the table always saying to yourself, well, I have to be skeptical of this and uncover the evidence for what they're saying or the evidence period. And that's certainly the kind of thing I was grounded in. So when it came to this kind of new science, I really had to apply the same thing. And particularly with the power of eight groups, I mean, there's where I really got hijacked. I had written the field, but I was still interested. That was the result of all of that first research. But there was unfinished business as far as I was concerned because of what I'd realized, which is a lot of evidence demonstrating, as I said earlier, that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. So the journalist in me was saying, yeah, 
how far can we take this? You know, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a tiny little shift, like, you know, shifting a quantum particle? Or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? And also, what happens if lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? So I decided to test that with my next book. So the, the intention experiment was not just a book about, um, about intention, although it did gather together all of the evidence that I could find about the power of intention and the idea that thoughts are not only things, they're things that affect other things. And they are trespassers. They leave our bodies and they affect things out there. But I also wanted to test it. So the book was an invitation to take part in periodic intention experiments because I realized by then, and I published that book in 2007, I realized by then I knew most of the major scientists in consciousness research by then. And I also had a lot of readers, the, the book, as you said, the field was in 30 languages. So I thought, well, if I just in periodically invite them to come on my website with me and send a thought to some well-controlled target set up by a scientist, I'll have the biggest global laboratory in the world. And that's what we've done. I've worked with different scientists over the years. And every so often I invite either an audience I'm speaking in front of or my audience around the world to come onto a website or now YouTube or a special live stream platform or anything like that and all intend together for one target. And we've run 40 experiments to date, 36 of which have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. I've worked with different scientists, so I can't be accused of bias. We've done everything from making seeds grow faster with our thoughts, to purifying water with our thoughts, to lowering violence in war-torn or violent areas. We've done 10 peace intention experiments. And what I found was not only did we have big effects on the targets, we also had big effects on the participants. Uh, about 40 to 45% of the people who participate have major changes in their relationships with other people, particularly strangers, about half, because I survey people right after every, every intention experiment. That's part of the science too, what happened to you. And we find about half say they're more love, in love with everybody they come in contact with. People are hugging strangers by the time they're finished with it. They are making up with estranged partners or bosses or long lost relatives. Um, they're getting along better with everyone. Their lives are more peaceful. This is the peace intention experiments. And about one third of the participants every single time report they are extremely better in a particular health challenge, a condition, or they are completely cured, one third. So I started realizing there's some sort of bizarre mirror effect going on here when with group intention. And in 2008, I decided to play around with shrinking the whole process down to small groups of eight. And this is where I said I really got hijacked because I thought I would just experiment in a workshop we were giving in Chicago. 
And so I just said to my husband, I don't know, maybe we'll just put people in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention to a member of the group with a health challenge. And because he's a good journalist, he can't, he said, I love it, the power of eight. And that's how the name uh, got to be. It just uh, by total accident, we didn't really expect much to happen other than a kind of mild feel-good effect, maybe like a mild form of meditation. But when we put people in groups, had them send um, a an intention together to someone with a health challenge in the group, we found the next day we had <clears throat> people with our, we had a woman with arthritis who had been limping badly, walking normally. We had somebody else with MS throw away her crutches. We had somebody else with bad digestion um, have that resolved. Somebody else with depression say it was lifted. Somebody else with cataracts who said it was 80% better. So this is where I was astonished, blown away, and also slightly pissed off because I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm not a healer. This is not my work. I'm a journalist. I'm an investigative reporter. What is happening here? And, and also, besides being a little pissed off, I was also curious. I also said to myself, okay, what is really going on here? So I kept doing it in workshops around the world. I kept putting people in groups of eight and studying it, essentially, and looking at it from different angles. Um, what's working? Why is this working? What's happening to their brains when they're doing it? We even did neuroscience studies. And all of it demonstrated to me that I'd stumbled onto something quite amazing, a capacity that we all, all have. This is not me doing this. A capacity we have, a capacity about group intention that is quite remarkable and that is an innate power to heal. It's uh, amazing because it really reflects a lot of the, the research that I've done in working on my book. And if you probably have heard about the law of one material, they talk about human beings evolving into a social memory complex. And I start to see signs everywhere that we are more than just ourselves, that we are a collective. And, and and the more that we think and work in a collective, it's almost like we're one being. And what we're witnessing is the very beginning of this, this powerful effect that when multiple people come together, especially altruistically, that the amazing results occur. And so you've gotten it down to, to eight. Let's go on the other, the flip side. Does it increase in effectiveness with more people or does it essentially, is it remain about the same ineffectiveness as you add more people to the group? Well, Brian, we tested that out with our intention experiments. Did size of group matter was our big question. So I was running, and this is back in 2007, I ran my first seed experiment with the University of Arizona. And I was about to speak in Sydney, Australia, before a group of about seven, 800. And so Dr. Gary Schwartz, the noted psychologist, and his lab team, his whole team, he's got a whole um, consciousness laboratory there. Um, they put together a batches of four seeds, sets of seeds, took photographs of them, sent me all four photographs labeled A, B, C, D. Um, and 
I then had my audience choose which one we were going to send intention to, not telling the scientists which one we chose. We did our intention to one set of seeds, let's say seeds A. When we were done, we told the, uh, the University of Arizona scientists we were done. That was their cue to plant the seeds. We still didn't tell them which ones we sent intention to. They measured them five days later as we'd planned. And then I unblinded the study and said, oh yeah, it was seeds A. And <clears throat> lo and behold, seeds A grew significantly higher than the controls. Now we ran this uh, five other times in small groups, a small workshop I had of just a hundred in New York, um, a group of uh, healing touch practitioners, about 500 in South Carolina, different groups, smaller group in Dallas, Texas, big group in uh, Los Angeles, and giant group over the internet. So we did this in various multiple sizes, and it didn't matter. We got the same effects each time. The only thing that did matter was the healing touch practitioners, their seeds grew about twice as high as controls. And that I believe had a lot to do with them being all experienced intenders. So, which they do with their practice. So size of group doesn't seem to matter. That's what everybody keeps thinking. Oh, we've got to get the whole population of the world to do this. We don't, we don't. I see thousands of miracles in groups of eight or less or more. You know, we. I told you how Power of Eight came about. I just said to Brian, my husband, I don't know, I'll put people in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention to someone with a health challenge. And he said, I love it, the Power of Eight. Now, there are many cultural and historic significances to, there is historic significance to eight. Um, in the Chinese culture, it's a sign of good luck, eight. Um, it's a sideways infinity sign. There are many, there's lots attached to eight. Mm -hmm. But what I've discovered in my practice and in all of the thousands of power of eight groups I've run, it doesn't have to be eight. It can be six. It can be five. It can be 12. As long as it's a small group and a common intention, it is essentially, you know, a powerful, a powerful, powerful transformational unit. I found that um, eight, <clears throat> when I've run, it's particularly masterminds, it's like a perfect group dynamic. Enough people can, can participate in the group when it's about eight. It seems very <clears throat> natural. And I was going to ask that. We, we Over a hundred years ago, uh, Napoleon Hill wrote about the power of the mastermind in the seminal think and grow rich and how this is this amazing secret that so many people had found is the mastermind. And then when you read the, the, the power of eight, it makes me think about that. There's a mastermind that forms something elevated um, happens when, when eight, it's like 8,000, just, it, it's mm -hmm. like that when you combine, it's like you have one mind of 8,000, everybody's participating. It's really amazing when people get together and work as one mind communicating and working together. Absolutely. And as you said, eight is like a Goldilocks figure. You know, that's how yeah. I like to describe it. It's not too little. It's not too big. It's pretty perfect. And so I always encourage people to have as close as eight as possible. But, you know, this whole idea of operating as one mind, we actually demonstrated this. 
I was lucky enough one time to speak in front of uh, Life University, one of the largest and most prestigious chiropractic universities in the world. And the president of the university got interested in power bait groups and he put their neuroscience department at my disposal. So I had a team of neuroscientists help me conduct a study. We got student volunteers, people, these were mostly people who had never even meditated before. We gave them some rudimentary instructions and then we put an EEG capped on one member of the senders of each group. Remember the senders, any group is everybody but one person who's the receiver doing the sending. So we put an EEG cap on one of the senders and we found across the board with all of our groups that the brain waves that occurred were completely consistent. And instead of it looking like meditation, which we thought it was going to look like, we thought we were going to have an identical situation in meditation. It looked nothing like the brainwave signatures of meditation, nothing. You know, with, with meditation, you get an increase in alpha waves. That is slower waves, brain waves than ordinary waking consciousness um, and delta. So even slower still. Ours weren't slowing down. They were turning off. So what we found is almost immediately the parts of the brain involved with making us feel separate. So that is the parietal lobes. They sit right here toward the back of the head. They help us navigate through space. They tell us, this is me, this is not me. They were dialed way down. So were the parts of the brain, the temporal lobes, but also, also the uh, right uh, frontal lobes. Those parts of the brain involved with worry, doubt, negativity also dialed way down. These were brainwave signatures almost identical to those conducted, the studies conducted by Dr. Andrew Newberg, the neuroscientist then at the University of Pennsylvania, who conducted studies of Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer and Sufi masters during chanting. Almost identical brainwave signatures, virtually identical. These were people whose brain waves, brains, and sense of separateness and doubt and worry were turning off. These were people in a state of ecstatic oneness. And it's oneness, that's the piece you're talking about, that's what I've been banging on about is, I think the secret sauce here is, we get to experience what oneness feels like. Because, you know, we're all talking about, oh, we're part of the field. Lots of people ask me, how do I enter the field? And I say to them, well, you don't have to enter it. You are the field. You're part of the field. We're all part of the field. Your subatomic particles and my subatomic particles are doing a dance out there with every other subatomic particle. But we don't experience life like that. We experience life as a kind of separateness and a, uh, an abysmal separateness. We feel separate and alone you know, a lonely little person on a lonely planet in a lonely universe. But that's not what reality is. And when we come together in a power of eight group, I find that we enter that state of oneness and it happened with my student volunteers almost immediately. And remember, these people were novices. 
And that is the interesting piece of all this. You know, the same occurs with Buddhist, you know, a Buddhist monk in ecstatic prayer, a Sufi master during chanting. But it takes, you know, hours, days, years of practice to become a Buddhist monk, a skilled Buddhist monk or a Sufi master. It also takes hours of priming to get in that state. Mm-hmm. Our folks were student volunteers, most of whom had never meditated before. And yet within a minute or two, they entered into a state of ecstatic oneness. And all they had was some rudimentary instructions from me. So I always like to say, you don't need sweat lodges. You don't have to climb up churches on your knees. You don't have to prostrate yourself. You don't have to study for years. All you need is a is a group and a common intention, and it is your fast track to the miraculous. The more I become aware when I meditate of my own personal field with my Merkaba, even just feeling out, I can sometimes sense intuitively to a certain extent my own personal field. My question is, obviously my field is entangled with the larger field. Is there a way or is there experiments or research to show where my field stops and where it integrates with the larger field. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, there is no your field stops, the rest of the field right. begins. There is one field. Um, you're probably feeling your energy. And of course, we are all sending out energy. Our subatomic particles are sending out energy. We're made completely of energy. But that merges with the field. And perhaps you are experiencing that, that that sense of your own energy. But it is very hard to experience the larger field um, unless you are in essentially an altered state. And that is certainly something that happens with the power of eight. We have thousands of testimonials from people who have done power of eight groups, have been in my power of eight intention master class and other classes of mine where they've been put into power of eight groups, they talk repeatedly about experiencing a state that is almost identical to that described by Abraham um, Maslow, the, the famous psychologist who studied peak experiences, you know, the sense of an overwhelming sense of oneness, a sense of physical changes like goosebumps, lots of my people say they feel energy, they feel energy running through their hands, they get very hot, they feel goosebumps, they start crying uncontrollably. They have that kind of experience of change, Um, a blinding epiphany of meaning, things suddenly make sense, Uh, a sense of rejuvenation, and definitely this, this sense of, you know, of connection, a connectivity to the rest of the universe. That and more is what people describe over and over again. And as I say, the other aspect of this is near instant healings. Now with meditation, we hear a lot of the time that you have to stay in a meditative state. You've got to to power into an hour or two. I have never put people in power rate groups for more than 10 minutes. And the reason I did that is because uh, when we started intention experiments, we thought we were, you know, making it up as we went along, essentially, you know, the protocol. And we were saying, well, how long can the first group that we do this 
hold a thought if they've never meditated before. And we thought, oh, maybe about 10 minutes. And then we did that and the first intention experiment worked. And then we carried on and they were working with 10 minutes. So when I put people for the first time in power of eight groups, I said, well, we do this with intention experiments. Let's just do it just for 10 minutes. And I can tell you, I've had two people get up out of wheelchairs, one of whom was um, paralyzed from the neck down. I have videos of this. Another woman had multiple sclerosis and I have a video of her pushing away her wheelchair and saying, this was amazing. Both of these did it for the first time. That was that happened during the first time. I've had people cancel their surgery. I have had Sandy was due to have knee surgery. She couldn't even stand on her uh, on her leg. Her knee wobbled. And after she did her first intention experiment, you know, her first power bait group, she did a deep squat. And subsequently, I followed up with her. She was able to cancel her surgery. We've had people. Um, their eyes, well, I had one woman, Lori, last year, was going blind. She had two detached retinas. Doctor said nothing you can do about it. She was in a power of eight group in, a, in the master class, and she's got 20-25 um, vision. 20-20 in one eye, 20-25 in the other now. Um, we have Leandra, who had terrible leukemia, and her group was intending for her while she was in the hospital, in her hospital bed. And it has completely regressed. It's now, you know, it's reversed. She's got normal numbers now. And, you know, on and on and on. Yeah. I've got thousands of these stories. But, and I find this, this procedure, this whole idea of intending in a group is there's lots of reasons why it works. You know, there is intention itself. There's no question that thoughts affect other things. There is group effects. You know, as the psychologist, the famous French psychologist, Emile Durkheim said, there's a collective effervescence that happens in a group. There is altruism. As you mentioned earlier, altruism is really the other secret sauce. When people are stuck, in my master class, I will invariably say to them, get off of yourself, start intending for someone else and see what happens. And I've had, you know, many hundreds of stories of people, once they did that, life started happening for them when they started intending for someone else. And I've found it with the senders, there's as much success when they are senders. You know, I had Lisa who was getting nowhere on her book um, she was trying to write a book and she couldn't find an editor. They were all letting her down. She was getting nowhere. She lacked confidence. As soon as she started intending for someone in her group with financial worries who had worse problems than she did, everything fell into place. She suddenly, out of nowhere, met a book coach, um, just bumped into her in a shop and they started talking. And it turns out this person's an ex-publisher. She's a book coach now, and she offers to walk her through the whole process. And the upshot is not only does she publish the book, but it becomes an Amazon bestseller. And that happened to Lisa. It happened to Andy, who couldn't get a job, had real scarcity pattern in her life, and was going through a divorce, really needed money. Her group intends for her. She intends. Nothing's happening until I finally say, Andy, get 
for yourself. And she does. And the next week she gets somebody calling her out of the blue, offering her her dream job. So altruism is a big, big piece. Um, And I really emphasize it and know the science of it. I mean, that was one thing I looked at in my book, The Power of Eight. I I looked at the science of it, of altruism. It's amazing. You know, people who do things for other people, no matter how small, live longer, healthier, happier lives. And so that's a big piece. The oneness thing. I think that is one of the big transformational aspects of it because we don't get to experience our real state of being in our life. I just love that in the intention experiment, how you show they, um, you know, try to uh, intend for some something in the past and they, and they still had effect. They were able, time doesn't even matter. You can go back and intend for stuff that's happened in the past and they were able to prove statistically significantly that they had an effect. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and it's something that we do now in courses. I actually do retro intention um, with numerous um, um, students of mine. And I work with my husband, Brian Hubbard, who is the author of a book called The Untrue Story of You, who developed a whole system he calls Time Light. to get over the past that invades us as though it happened today, like an unwanted guest. And so we've put our stuff together and we do a heal your past retreats and and courses. And I found that retro intention works just as those big retro intention studies demonstrate. Um, We had a woman in one of my workshops who had vitiligo from a time she had gone through some some trauma and had an infection in her teens. Now, vitiligo is lack of pigment. Your body doesn't pigment normally. And as we did the, after we did the retro intention, I swear to you, she said, I can't believe it. My skin is actually starting to repigment as I'm talking. I mean, that was eerie, weird, and happened. We saw it. Uh, But as you're saying, the big studies, and there have been loads of them, demonstrate um, that all kinds of things about time not being real. I mean, there's no place in the brain that understands time. Nowhere. In fact, the brain muddles it up. The brain, the same place in the brain that processes Um, the past also processes the future. So somebody with amnesia cannot imagine the future, cannot picture the future. So we have a muddled view of time in ourselves, but also any self-respecting physicist now, like Carlo Robelli, the famous Italian physicist, says there's no such thing as time. Any good quantum physicist will tell you the same, that we as human beings have created time to make sense of things, but there is no such thing as time. And scientific studies of all kinds, as you say, demonstrate, you know, that that uh, we well, that time doesn't exist. Um, One of my favorites was one with an Israeli professor who wanted to debunk alternative medicine. So he got together a big batch of patients 
who were suffering from sepsis, divided them into two groups. And one group got the standard treatment of drugs, et cetera. The other group got the standard treatment plus prayer. And he figured, well, this is going to blow it out of the water forever, that you can't use the scientific method to study alternative medicine. To his dismay, he discovered that the patients who had got prayer were better in every regard. They got out of the hospital sooner. They had fewer side effects, fewer mortalities. They were just better. Here's the kicker of the study. So the prayer was carried out in the year 2000. This study was carried out in the year 2000 with the prayer. The patients had been in the hospital from the years 1992 to 94, six to eight years earlier. So what Lebovici had done was very, very carefully and randomly randomize these two groups of patients and carried it out to a real as a as a stickler to the scientific method. Yet the patients who had got the prayer were better in every regard. So he published it in the Lancet, figuring this is going to demonstrate once and for all that you can't use the scientific met method to study alternative medicine. But that wasn't how it was interpreted. The way it was interpreted is that you can go back and change the past. Dean Radin has done an experiment. He's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's done a study looking at a two-step process with a psychological test. And he has found, hang on and listen to this carefully, he has found that the time it takes you to do the second part of this two-step process will affect the speed of the time it takes to do the first one. The time it takes you to do the second one will affect the speed of the time it takes you to do the first one. So the way he interprets this, and he did thousands of, uh, of, um, of studies of this. So he had thousands of instances of this where he was testing it. So he interpreted it as the following. We don't change the past. The future changes the present as it's unfolding. So that's so hard to get your mind around. And I remember asking the late Robert John about this, saying, how does this all, you know, how can this all be, Dr. John? And he said, simple Lynn, take time out of it and it all makes sense. And I think that's right. I think we have to understand with this new science that time is one great big smeared out now and space is one great big smeared out, smeared out here. And of course, we've proven that with the intention experiments where we've demonstrated that distance doesn't matter. I mean, look at that first experiment I talked about at uh, in Sydney, Australia. First of all, I was in Sydney, Australia, me and my audience doing the intending. The seeds were in Tucson, Arizona, 8,000 miles away. Plus, we weren't doing intention to the thing itself, the seeds, we were doing intention to a photograph of the seeds, a symbolic representation of the seeds. Nevertheless, we had an effect. And so that gives you an idea about space and so-called non-locality, the idea that we are all connected through the field. And we now know we're also all connected through time too.
I would love to know because you have your finger on the pulse of of the research that's coming out. Is there new stuff that's coming out? I mean, we're talking about stuff that's been researched 15 years ago, right? So, or or you were discussing research that was even older. So there obviously is new studies coming out. Where are we at when we're just when we're researching intention and all of the things you're talking about? As you say, this is not new. This is a history. Mm -hmm. um, science proceeds very slowly, as the saying goes, one funeral at a time. In the field, I wrote about people, and I published that book in 2001 and two. I was writing about people whose major discoveries came out in the 70s and 80s and were only getting acknowledged, not really even getting acknowledged. So I was writing a history. There are new things in the sense that, and I'm I'm researching them now and planning on another another book. Um, there are new new studies and new experiences now, just delving deeper into this and a tacit acknowledgement of this, in the sense that there was a Nobel Prize winner that just won for saying that the the universe doesn't exist. And basically saying, you know, non-locality does and finally demonstrating it with people that I wrote about in the field, Alan Aspect and, um, and Bell, who did the first studies of non-locality, demonstrating them, the, the spooky act action at a distance that Einstein refused to acknowledge. But now people are sort of understanding that non-locality is mainstream. Newer studies are also demonstrating something that was always taken for granted, but is now being disproven, which is that there is a science of the small, the quantum particle, and a science of the large. And what this has always said was, the science of the small is this anarchic little universe of non-locality and spooky action at a distance and bizarre field effects. But once these subatomic particles get to understand that they're part of something bigger, they start behaving themselves according to predictable Newtonian rules. Well, we're now realizing that that's not true, that even in the large, in the big sticks and stones world we live in, that things operate according to quantum processes. So we see that the biggest molecules in the universe now still have a thing called superposition, which means they're not an actual entity yet. They're not an actual something, only a potential of something. And what makes that something turn into something real is the observation or involvement of an observer. We are creating that, helping to create that. Now we're recognizing that big things display those characteristics too. We're now recognizing that essential processes like photosynthesis operate according to quantum processes. That important, most important um, transformation of energy into uh, oxygen occurs because of quantum processes. So we're kind of getting that this strange involved quantum process that needs us as creators is part of the big visible world. 
And we're getting more and more information about that, as well as more and more information about time and that we that time doesn't really exist. And of course, we're getting more and more information about our role as creators. One of the fascinating parts of intention experiment also that comes to mind is you kind of document there there is an effect with solar flares. Solar activity can increase the effectiveness of an intention. So, uh, you know, I, it, it, when, when I see a full moon or a solar flare activity, should I, when I see that in, 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 in on my newsfeed, should I take that as an opportunity maybe to set some extra intentions or is has the science changed on that? Well, uh, the moon is different. <clears throat> the okay. moon, I think the full moon tends to be um, more powerful than, uh, I think a new moon rather than a full moon. But with solar flares, yeah, the more activity the sun sends out, and the reason this all works is um, the sun is a furious star. You know, it's a it's a, a batch of gaseous stuff crossed with um, magnetic fields, and that is a recipe for periodic in, um, explosions, as it has. And it sends that gaseous stuff toward Earth, which hits the geomagnetic shield that covers the earth, essentially like a great big energetic donut. And when it does hit it, it has, a, even though it's a subtle energy, it has a profound effect on all living things, particularly on human beings and the two energetic systems of the body, the heart and the brain. And it destabilizes us. It Heart attacks increase when there's a lot of solar activity. Uh, epileptic fits increase. Psychiatric admissions increase. You know, we get energetically destabilized. However, in one case, it's important, and that is with intention. Studies have demonstrated when there is some uh, a lot of solar activity, it does actually augment intentions. So it is a good idea. In, in my Power of Eight Intention Masterclass, I talk about the right time and talk about maximizing your intentions by aligning them with solar activity. So once again, I just want everybody to check out the Power of Eight and Intention Masterclass. You can find it at lynnmctaggart.com. I'll put, description, put uh, an explanation in the description. Lynn's books have been so amazing for me, especially if you're somebody out there that's doubting the power of thought or doubting that the thought can have any effect on the material world. Lynn has proven that this uh, is an actual fact. And when you read these books, it gives you greater clarity and understanding of working in groups and the power of service, the power of altruism. Thank you so much for the work that you've done in helping me on my spiritual journey to move forward and move beyond these little limitations that I'd place for myself in belief and faith in what's happening in the world. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Brian. And <clears throat> just to let everybody know, the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass is actually a year-long class. Oh, wow. So I teach people with uh, live and interactive sessions 
Uh, I like to call it intention boot camp. And then we put people into groups for a whole year in their time zone. So you get a power of eight group of your own. And I continue to work with you in periodic intention clinics to make sure it works. But that is the big, big uh, success of these uh, of these power of eight groups, people meeting week after week after week. That's when the miracles start happening and when people can give and receive. And that's what I've been, you know, very fortunate to witness. It's so exciting. And it, and it's so true. I, I mean, as you were telling your stories, I've had a, an a occasion recently where I was too much in myself. As soon as I took a break and started uh, intending for some other people, it all came back to me. Um, everything that you've said has been reflected in my own life. What you've researched has been proven in my own life. And I guarantee people that are watching this have also had verification of the things that you're saying. And you bring it out into the open and, and make it real and, and profound. And I appreciate that immensely. Thank you so much Thank for the work so that much. you're doing. Thank you, Brian. It's been great being with you. And welcome to the Reality Revolution Line. We return you now to your local announcement.